Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza Pot and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today, we will be focusing on the role of religion in American politics, its impact on the 2020 election, and what that means for the future. Hi everyone, my name is Rachel Sabnani. I'm the co-chair of ND Votes. I'm a senior here at Notre Dame, science pre-professional studies major with a minor in constitutional studies and science technology and values. And I'm joined by the ND Votes Chair for Community Engagement, Patrick, here today. Hello everyone, uh, I'm Patrick Imony. I'm a junior studying political science from Long Beach, California. And as Rachel mentioned, I am the Chair for Community Engagement of ND Votes this year. Here with us today is David Campbell, the Packy J.D. Professor of American Democracy at the University of Notre Dame and the Chair of the Political Science Department. He has written several books on the role of religion and secularism in American politics, including American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, winner of the 2011 Woodrow Wilson Award from the American Political Science Association for the best book on government, politics, or international affairs. We'd give you more impressive details, but Professor Campbell has previously described these introductions as like when people force you to watch a video of their kid at a dance recital. So without further ado, Professor David Campbell. Well, I am happy to be here uh, and I'm glad you used my dance recital line. That, that was good. Of course. So to start us off, um, both Rachel and I are in your class on religion in American politics this semester, in which you co-authored two of the books you've read so far, American Grace from 2010 and then 2020's Secular Search. Could you tell us about your academic and professional background and why you started to look into the issue of religion in American politics? Sure. Well, I uh, was an undergraduate at Brigham Young University, which as you may or may not know, is wholly owned and operated by the Mormon Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as they prefer to be known. And when you are a student at BYU, you can't avoid religion. Uh, students at Notre Dame think they're at a religious university. You have no, you've seen nothing until you've been to BYU. <laughs> um, so I was there in the mid-1990s, and it seemed like a natural thing that you'd want to connect religion with whatever else you were interested in, and I was a political science major, so religion and political science seemed to fit nicely together. Then I went off to graduate school, and when I was in graduate school, I discovered that there really, at the time, wasn't much written on the role of religion in American politics, which might seem strange today, but at that time, that really was the case. In fact, many political scientists were skeptical that religion even really mattered much in American politics. So I was encouraged by the professors I worked with when I was in graduate school, who themselves were not experts in religion, but they could sort of see what the trend was. They encouraged me as someone who had some familiarity and definitely an interest in religion to pursue that as a topic. And so I certainly wasn't the first, but I was part of a relatively small group in the early days, if you will, of establishing what has now become a field of study in American politics. And so from there, I ended up with a job at Notre Dame, where again, the study of religion is sort of an, a natural thing. And um, I've been very fortunate at Notre Dame in that I have colleagues here 
um, including uh, Jeff Lehman. He and I worked together a lot, um, who also is one of those people who was uh, an early adopter, if you will, in the study of religion. And so both with Professor Lehman and with Bob Putnam and with various other people, I have collaborated on a variety of different projects. Awesome. So in American Grace, you looked at religious traditions in America and unsurprisingly to some found that belonging to different faith traditions is associated with particular political beliefs and behaviors. Some may think that internal faith wouldn't or shouldn't affect external political views, but why do you think there is such a connection in the U.S. specifically and is this phenomenon unique to America? You raise a good question uh, when you ask about why would we think that people's religious beliefs would connect to their politics? Maybe the fact that they would connect, that's perhaps not surprising, but the particular way that they connect, at least at this period of time in American history, um, is by no means predetermined. There's no iron law that links any form of religion with any form of politics. And so in the past, often the religious folks have been more on the political left than on the political right. Or maybe more accurately, we'd say religious people have been all over the political spectrum. And that's true in the U.S. and it's true um, elsewhere. Now, in our current moment, it won't come as a surprise for people to hear that many religious groups, particularly white evangelical Protestants, and many, but by no means all, Catholics lean toward the Republican Party, and that's largely because of the particular issues that the Republican Party has emphasized over the last year or last generation that kind of resonate with those groups. But, you know, we have many other religious groups, Black Protestants being a good example, um, who are equally fervent in their religious beliefs and um, not Republicans, to put it mildly, <laughs> uh, you know, generally favoring the Democratic Party and also putting emphasis on different issues. So a lot of it has to do with the way political leaders actually connect religion and political views, and then how that's communicated through people's religious communities. Got it. So for the average voter then, how does their religion affect their politics? Is it mainly about like the beliefs that they hold, who they're friends with, who you know their networks or their pastors are telling them to vote for, or is it some other way? You know, it's often um, what you've hinted at there, not so much instruction from the pulpit. I think many people are under this uh, mistaken impression that to just take evangelical Protestants as the case in point, since they get a lot of attention in the press, I think a lot of people are under the impression that white evangelicals go to church and their pastor tells them who to vote for and it's all done. It's not like that at all, actually. Religious congregations and communities are places where people share ideas and they absorb political information. And so a lot of what happens that might steer people in a given religious tradition toward one party versus the other is a lot more subtle than just simply sermons over the pulpit. A lot of it is the messages get shared on Facebook, the comments that are made in between uh, church meetings. It's, you know, just the people you hang out with and you often begin to adopt the same worldview uh, without making politics explicit. And that's also something to keep in mind. Most people actually don't like to talk about politics. And so when they pick up political cues, it's often kind of under the radar screen. In American politics, does what religion you identify with or how religious you are matter more in predicting your behavior in the political sphere? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, a classic social science answer. It's a little bit of both. Um, although for many things that we observe in 
political and civic behavior. It is actually how religious you are that matters, less the particular religious tradition you are a part of. There are exceptions to that. But if you look at just, for example, whether or not people vote or whether or not people are involved in political campaigns, so not which party, but just whether or not they're actually doing it, that is not driven by whether you're an evangelical or a Catholic or a black Protestant or you're Jewish. That is simply a matter of how religious you are. That sort of applies across the board. Now, there are going to be differences within those traditions. Some people are going to end up voting for the Democrats and some for the Republicans. But in general, religiosity just drives all sorts of civic and political behavior. So in your most recent book, Secular Surge, uh, you look at two groups of people uh, described by labels that the average person might think are synonyms. And I certainly did. Secular and non-religious. Can you tell us about the difference between these two groups of people and why it matters for politics? Yes, I can. In fact, I could go on at great length, but I will restrain myself, I promise. Here's the basic <laughs> intuition. We already know a lot about people who are religious. Lots of people, myself included, but many, many others have for many years studied religiosity and how that drives people's political behavior and their political choices at the ballot box. Right? We know all about that. And frankly, up until now, up until the publication of this book, we've just assumed, myself included, really, if we go back to my earlier work, that the way to think about people who are not religious is just they're the opposite of the religious people. So if being religious means that you are, you know, highly civically engaged, being not religious means you're not civically engaged, right? So that is the way we thought about it. We just took all the religiosity measures and flipped them around. In fact, the biggest trend in the growth of secularism in America, the one that many people I think are aware of, is that an increasing number of Americans say they have no religion. Now think about what that means, right? That means we're defining them by what they are not. When they're asked, what's your religion? They say, well, I don't have one. Well, it turns out that when you look at the secular population in America, they're way more complicated than just a group of people who aren't religious. Some of them can be described that way, we might say they are defined by what they are not. But there's another group who might not be religious. Maybe in some respects they kind of are, but they also have a very active, positive embrace of a secular worldview. They think of themselves as secular. They use words like secular or humanist or atheist or agnostic to describe themselves. They derive truth and meaning in their life from secular sources. And these people who we call the secularists are very different than those people who are just simply not religious. So the not religious people, the non-religionists, they actually are not involved in, a much, in, in much stuff. Like they've disengaged from religion and that usually means they disengage from lots of things. The secular folks, the secularists, very different. They know what they are. And because they know what they are, they are often very certainly politically engaged and often somewhat, you know, sort of civically engaged. It is in the non-political stuff. They're volunteers, they're out there, they're doing stuff. Um, it's a very important distinction and one that we hope this book helps to uh, illuminate. Great. Moving our discussion a little bit towards the most recent, the 2020 presidential election, obviously there are a lot of headline stories and new trends coming out of that election. Everything from mobilization of African-American voters in Georgia to swings in the Hispanic vote, the suburban vote, and of course, everything that's happened post-election with false claims of election fraud. So what do you think is the biggest story about religion's role in the 2020 election? 
I think there are actually a couple of different stories. So one um, that I'm sure we're going to get into that's quite interesting historically anyway, is the way Joe Biden would lean into his Catholic identity. This mm -hmm. is really quite remarkable. And, you know, American politicians, particularly the presidential level, so often talk about religion that many people may not realize just how significant this is. Not that he's a Catholic running for president. We've had other examples of that. It's that he didn't try to hide it, didn't try to run away from it, didn't try to apologize for it. He was very open about it. And in spite of that, did not do measurably better among Catholic voters than other Democrats at the top of the ticket in previous election cycles. So it's not as though... Uh, Joe Biden could lean into his Catholicism and just assume that Catholics would vote en masse for him, which is a very different world than in 1960 when John F. Kennedy ran as a Catholic, did everything he could to avoid talking about his Catholicism and still won a huge percentage of the Catholic vote. So I think that's one of the big stories that came out of uh, 2020. Um, another is the ongoing romance between uh, white evangelicals and Donald Trump. Um, the the Bloom might be a little bit off the rose there in that, you know, there was some speculation that white evangelicals would not be as ardently in favor of Trump. And he did seem to do a little bit worse among that group in 2020 than he did in 2016. But we're talking margin of error differences. So nothing dramatic. And that's been one of the, you know, big stories. I talked to reporters around the world. Just the other day, I talked to an Israeli reporter who, you know, brought that up again, just completely baffling. Why is it the white evangelicals are in such thrall to, uh, to Donald Trump? So I think those are sort of the two main stories. There's some other side stories that are interesting. Uh, Mormons who are heavily Republican, never really been on the Trump bandwagon. There's a case to be made that Trump lost Arizona because suburban Mormons actually couldn't bring themselves to vote for Trump. So, you know, lots of little side stories as well. Fascinating. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on um, what you mentioned about the Biden campaign's approach to faith, because you mentioned 1960. But of course, in 2004, we also had um, a Catholic Democrat going up against a Protestant Republican in the presidential race. And in that race, George Bush actually did better among Catholic voters than John Kerry. So I'm curious, in light of that, um, in light of the fact that we don't expect Catholics to vote as a bloc anymore, what can we read into the Biden campaign strategy to emphasize his personal faith? What sort of, you know, electoral incentives do you think that might have been serving? Well, I think it did a couple of things for him. One, it enabled Joe Biden to talk about his background by working his Catholicism into that story in a very natural way, because putting just religion aside, the general persona that Joe Biden has, of course, is of, um, you know, he, he, he's your uncle. He's just a regular guy, not someone who comes from, um, you know, an elite world. And that's actually true. He really does come from a working class uh, background. That's not just image making on his part. And by working his Catholicism into that, he's able to sort of emphasize his common roots. You know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an Irish Catholic and I went to Catholic school and I went to mass or I go to mass just like you or just like people you know. Uh, but beyond that, I think there was clearly an effort on the part of the Biden campaign to reach out to Catholic voters. Now, nationally, he didn't necessarily do better among Catholics or white Catholics in particular than other Democrats have. That doesn't mean that it didn't uh, help him in particular states. So it may very well have helped in Pennsylvania, for example, where there's a large Catholic population. But also beyond the Catholic vote, we should remember that 
you know, we live in a in an America where Catholic Protestant distinctions are really not much of a thing anymore. And so by portraying himself as a practicing Catholic, Biden is also reaching out to other religious voters who are not themselves Catholic, again, as part of his appeal to the moderate middle, you know, hey, look at me, I'm of guy of faith, and sure, you're not Catholic, but you're, you know, Protestant, or you're some other faith, and you can kind of relate to the fact that, that I, um, I'm a just a, a regular churchgoer, I just go to mass like everybody else, you know, so there's, a, there's a lot of that going, going on. So on the other side of the aisle, one of the more shocking moments of the 2020 campaign season was when former Notre Dame football coach Lou Holtz called Biden a Catholic in name only at the Republican National Convention. What do you think this quip meant in the context of religious conservatism and how is this perhaps an effective attack in a party which is majority Protestant? <laughs> so you make a good point about the fact that, uh, you know, here you have a fellow Catholic at the Republican convention criticizing a Democrat for not being a believing Catholic or not, you know, following all the principles of the church. A far um, cry from 1960. That's a far sure. cry from 1960. That is definitely true. What Lou Holtz's comment illustrates is that um, Catholics are not a monolithic block, have not been for a long time. And so there are divisions within Catholicism. And those divisions reflect not just disputes among Catholics, but they actually reinforce the political divisions we have in the country. So when Lou Holtz is saying he's a Biden's a Catholic in name only, he's not only speaking to Catholics, right? He's speaking to many voters because he's reminding them that Biden is pro-choice on abortion. And that matters far beyond Catholic voters, right? There are many, many other voters, particularly evangelical Protestants, who care a lot about that issue as well. But it was truly a remarkable moment. I think you're right to highlight that, that here was somebody um, who you know, made his name at a Catholic institution and is himself Catholic, being critical of <laughs> a not just a fellow Catholic, but a fellow Catholic running for president who now is our you know, only the second Catholic president we've ever had. That's, again, remarkable stuff. Nothing like what you would have seen in 1960. Yeah, and honing in on that criticism for, you know, not being religious enough, we've talked about the rise of secularism and the growth of the nuns, America's largest non-religious group. How did they vote and what can we learn from that? Well, if you look at just at the nuns, like so you, just people who don't have religious affiliation, and that's going to include the groups I earlier described as the non-religionists and the secularists. But if you put all those people together, they went pretty heavily for Biden, and that's what we would expect. But if you break them up and differentiate between those secularists, the people who are actively secular, and those who are just simply, eh, we don't know who they are, who's not religious, you actually see that it's the secularists who are far more likely to vote for the uh, Democratic side. The non-religionist folks, they actually split their vote between, uh, so it's not accurate to describe them as sort of heavy Trump voters, but they're more likely to vote for Trump than the secularist people are. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because a lot of these people are kind of your quintessentially alienated, disengaged folks who really are Trump's base. And so we should not be surprised by their affection for Trump. I want to follow on this because I think a lot of the discourse around the 2020 election in conservative circles, especially if you look at Attorney General Barr's speech at Notre Dame, which was, you know, not right before the election, but sort of the lead up, have two sort of approaches to 
secular culture in America, quote unquote. Uh, one is a concern that people are disenchanting from their religion. Um, and that is often accompanied by cries for like civic renewal and like building institutions and those sorts of things. And another is a concern, I can't remember what Attorney General Barr actually said when he was here, but uh, something along the lines of like a, you know, an axis of secularism, like being hostile to and trying to attack American religious institutions. And that seems to line up um, at least a little bit tighter with the notion of like per personal secularism rather than simply non-religiosity that you study. So do you expect that the distinction between secularists and people who are non-religious uh, will continue to like gain salience in politics? And what, what do you think that holds for the future of American politics and especially the you know relation between religious and non-religious folks? What I would expect to see is that over the short to medium term, more rhetoric of the sort that you're describing. So as a reminder to people, the attorney general at the time, William Barr, gave a, a rather provocative speech here at Notre Dame in which, as Patrick has suggested, he basically described a war between forces of secularism and you know, good old rank and file religious Americans, not acknowledging actually that there are quite a few secular Americans. This is not a small group. In fact, you could argue that there are just as many secular Americans as there are Catholics, just to give you a sense of scale. So I would expect to see that on the political right, you will see more and more rhetoric about secularists because they are a growing force. They are actually the base of the Democratic Party, or at least they're not the sole base, but they are an important part of the, the base of activists within the Democratic Party. So that will be a source of political dispute. You know, Republicans will point to the Democrats and they'll use terms like, well, they're the godless party and you know, they're controlled by secular humanists and phrases like that. However, because the secular population is growing, at some point that will cease to be an effective political strategy because there will be enough secular voters out there that it won't make sense to completely alienate them. So I would expect not immediately, but eventually for people on the right to be, be more accommodating toward a secular population. And you may have even seen hints of that already because it's not as though all secular voters are concentrated in the Democratic Party. There actually is a wing of secularists in the Republican Party. They don't get much attention now in the era of Trump, but just before Trump, you could find evidence of this because many libertarians are secular. So for example, many people who support Ron Paul and then his son Rand Paul actually score really highly on our measures of secularism. Now, as for the non-religionist folks, I don't ex expect them to be much of a factor in American politics. They're not very engaged. Um, they might turn out to vote, but they're, they're hard to mobilize even to vote. And beyond that, they're just not likely to, to be a voice just because they're on the sidelines. Awesome. So now we're going to transition the conversation a little bit to some more forward-looking aspects of what we can learn from the 2020 election. Um, so my question is about the evangelical support for Donald Trump has been pointed to by many non-evangelicals and even some evangelicals themselves as evidence of hypocrisy or compromise on their moral standards. Looking forward, do you expect the high religious base of the Republican Party or the religious right to continue supporting candidates who are not explicitly Christian or maybe personally odious in pursuit of larger policy goals in a transactional relationship or to revert to the personal morality emphasis of the Clinton years? Good question. So just as a reminder to listeners, it wasn't all that long ago that 
evangelicals in the country, evangelical leaders in particular, were voices calling for moral rectitude and high ethics in our government leaders. And they were often very critical of Bill Clinton in, in particular because of his big scandal while he was in the White House. And that's changed right now under Donald Trump. We don't find so much concern about, you know, the personal moral behavior of at least of Trump. There are a lot of excuses made uh, for him. Whether that will continue is a tricky question because one school of thought is this is just Trump, that Trump himself was just a singular politician. And once he's out of the picture, who knows when that will be, because he may be able to run again, everything will kind of revert to the way it was. Another view is that, no, actually, there's been a fundamental transformation. I am of the transformation side of that discussion. And the reason I say that is I think what's happened with American evangelicalism is that it's become as much a political movement as it is a religious movement. And even though I myself am not an evangelical and I don't even necessarily share a lot of the, the policy priorities that you find in that community, I just think as an observer, that's actually unfortunate because throughout the course of American history, religious leaders have often been on both the left and the right, a prophetic voice. They have often been able to call Americans to do something different with our political life whether it was abolishing slavery or promoting civil rights, but there are lots of other issues as well. And again, they fall on both the left and the right. Evangelicals are giving up that ability to be prophetic by simply marching in lockstep with one party. And I would say the same thing on the left as well. It's not just simply that they're on the right. It's when you're in lockstep with a party, you are simply a political movement. You're an extension of a party and therefore you can't really speak beyond the party. You can't transcend partisanship. And that's a tragedy. One of the other major trends that's been accelerated by the Trump era is educational polarization. What happens when education polarization hits religious polarization, especially for those like cross-pressers voters that might be high in education, also high in religiosity, or those which might be low in both? Well, one thing to remember, just so listeners uh, keep this in mind, there's, it, there's a myth that religion is only for the poor. That might be true globally. It's certainly not true in the United States. In fact, church going is very much a middle class activity in the, in the U.S. And so for many religious voters, there might be less conflict than you might think. So a lot of those evangelicals that I was describing who vote Republican, they often have a lot of education, or at least they're... The, they're fairly affluent. I'm not going to say they're part of the 1%, but they're, you know, they're comfortable. But to the extent that there is a conflict, it will present an interesting question for political scientists to answer. And that is, what do people prioritize more? Is it going to be the worldview that they get from their education? Or is it the worldview that comes from their religion? And sometimes that can be in conflict. Thus far, I would say the religion has won out. <laughs> and I would expect that that's probably going to be the case going forward. But, you know, it's not like political scientists are good at predicting the future. It turns out the prediction is hard, especially about the future. So, well, future. I'm going to ask another prediction question. <laughs> I, was, I feel like we need rim shots or a laugh track or something. Come on. That was a good line. It's not mine. <laughs> um, so America's distinction as a particularly religious country, as we've learned in our class, for its level of development is in tension with the rise of the nuns. Which of these trends do you expect to win out? And do you think America's religiosity will snap back or go the way of many other developed democracies? 
Well, that's a good question. So uh, 100% correct that, of course, the United States has always been the outlier uh, when it comes to, you know, Western industrialized liberal democracies. Americans sort of hung on to religion in a way that the British and the Germans and the French and all these other countries didn't. Uh, now we see a growth of secularism, including the rise of the nuns, but also this other group that I'm describing. Um, what does that mean for the future? Well, you should not assume that America is on its way to becoming France. Because one thing we know about the history of religion in America is that it is very adaptable. And every time we think, we collectively, not me personally, but collectively in the past, smart people have thought, ah, this is it. This is when America is about to become a secular country. There has been some sort of religious revival. Now, will that happen again? As I said, prediction is hard. Maybe we've gone too far down the secular road and there won't be a revival. My best guess is there probably will be. Uh, it won't be a reawakening in that, you know, we would expect to see a massive resurgence of religion. But I am willing to bet that you're going to see more and more religious leaders, particularly the younger ones, who want to disconnect religion from politics. And so you'll see sort of a newer version of religion that doesn't seem to be mixed up in politics of either the left or the right. Will that be enough to completely counter the secular trend? Probably not, but it likely will slow it down would be my guess. Because I think a lot of Americans, you know, they grow up in a religious world and they, they are looking for something in their lives that isn't purely secular. They just don't like what they see when they, you know, explore religious options. So I think if they had other options, they might behave differently. That's an interesting prediction um, because to me, it seems like the way the trends have been going is for religion to, you know, to get people, you know, jazzed up about it has taken on more and more of a political uh, mm -hmm. role. And whether we look at, you know, personal secularists, as you described, um, white evangelicals, or even the way in which some sort of inter-Catholic or intra-Catholic church disputes have sort of decoded in the American press on the American popular understanding is liberal versus conservative. The trend in, in my view has almost been uh, going the other way. And we've talked a lot about what that means for politics, but I'm curious what you think that means for American religion. Well, first of all, let me acknowledge that, you know, I've offered one possible scenario for the future. And you, you may be right that, you know, what I've described as a potential revival of sorts doesn't happen, um, but I wouldn't rule it out because we've seen it before. As for what happens to American religion, um, as I said, American religion is very adaptable. And so whether you're talking about Catholics or Protestants or Mormons or Jews or Muslims or whatnot, um, I would expect that even if it doesn't lead to a religious resurgence, that increasingly you will find religious leaders who want to counter the narrative that you've just described that religion is either wholly political or it's wrapped up in politics. And again, either on the, either the left or the right, um, it might not succeed in winning the, the nuns back to church, but I suspect it will at least redefine for many religious people what it means to be religious. I, I just, I cannot believe that religious leaders are content to continue to entangle religion with partisan politics. And I think you've seen some moves in some traditions uh, of leaders who recognize that and are, are trying to position their religious community as being separate or above or apart from the political fray. Turns out most people don't like to talk about politics at church. They really don't. They would rather just go to church. So it sounds like there's hope. <laughs>
well, you know, there are some people who would say, of course, they hear about politics at church or whether I think it's politics is their problem. We're just going to teach truth. Right. And truth comes with a capital T and like it or lump it. That's just the way it's going to be. I think our last question for you is what do you see as the importance of studying your field of studying religion in politics uh, and in American politics for university students studying political science and then, you know, having an understanding of it for students more broadly? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm happy to make the case for why we should care about the role of religion in American politics. And I mentioned how when I started in graduate school, there were was very little work done in this area and a lot of skepticism among political scientists that it mattered. I think the last 25 years have demonstrated that those of us who thought religion matters were right. <laughs> um, but the reason why college students should care is that if you want to be an informed citizen, if you want to make sense of the political world, you need to understand the various forces that are at play that shape the political landscape. And religion is one of them. It's not the only one. Race matters too, and class matters. And you know, there are other things that are, so I'm not saying religion is the only thing you should know, but it would seem odd to me to try to explain what the American political landscape looks like and not discuss religion. It is an integral part of our understanding of why people vote the way they do and why we have the policies that we do. And even beyond political science, it's actually something that anybody wants to understand the United States I think needs to have a handle on. So just beyond politics, just understanding the role of religion is important. And to pretend that it's not a factor is um, a fool's errand. Thank you so much, Professor Campbell. Andy Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Indy Student Media for their support and production of this podcast. We'd also like to thank our wonderful guest, Professor David Campbell, for being here today. As always, ND Votes reminds you to register to vote using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio and check out other voter education resources on that site. Your vote matters. Get political.